he does not necessarily believe in torture. Not necessarily? Or waterboarding. Or waterboarding? Is there a difference? Oh, Mr. Well, President. I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Oh, no, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Not today. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People Powered Radio in L.A. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI Newswatch. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio, on the Green Renaissance Network, WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM, WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day of the week on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, now celebrating our 12th anniversary in our 13th year of troublemaking and muckraking. Thanks to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do, to do that each and every day. Um, well, here's a funny item. As it turns out, Jared Kushner, the uh, president of the United States son-in-law and one of Donald Trump's closest White House advisors, is registered to vote to vote in both New Jersey and New York. Imagine that. And also White House press secretary Sean Spicer. Turns out he is also on the rolls in both Virginia and his home state of Rhode Island. That's according to election officials and voting registration records. Their dual registration, of course, offers two more high-profile examples of how common it is for voters to be on the rolls in multiple states, which Donald Trump has claimed to be evidence of voter fraud, which it is not. It is not illegal to be on the voter rolls in two separate states. It's illegal to vote in two separate states. But uh, Donald Trump has called for a major investigation of voter fraud, including, as he notes, uh, people who are registered in two separate states, people like his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his press secretary, Sean Spicer, apparently. Also, as we noted yesterday, um, White House chief, uh, chief strategist Steve Bannon is registered in two states. Oh, so is Donald Trump's daughter, Tiffany, registered in two states. Oh, so is Treasury Secretary nominee Steve Mnuchin. Also uh, registered in two separate states. White House officials did not respond to requests for comments from Washington Post, 
when this was discovered. So he could start that investigation right now in yeah. his own home. Oh, it'd be easy. <laughs> Just turn right home. next door. Would never have to leave. <laughs> That's right. He could find all of these uh, voter fraud criminals. Of course, they keep citing, and and I won't. Uh, I won't go through this again today. I just wanted to point that out. But he keeps citing this 2012 uh, Pew Center study uh, is showing that uh, some 2.75 million people are registered in more than one state, largely because when they move, they don't call the old state and unregister. Uh, it is not evidence of fraud. The study itself did not cite any of that uh, as evidence of voter fraud at all, despite what Donald Trump continues to say about that study. And uh, the author of that study has said as much time and time and time again, stop citing my study for evidence of voter fraud because it is not that. So uh, so so that happened. I'm sure we'll find out tomorrow. Uh, Melania is registered to vote in two states, maybe even two countries. Maybe she's not even a citizen. Has anybody checked her birth certificate, by the way? Is she allowed to be first lady without being born a natural born citizen? Just asking. I'm just asking these questions anyway. Uh, hey, good news coming up. Uh, take take heart. We're gonna. You know, it's been a hard week. It's been a <laughs> last week has been. This has been a very tough week over the past week. The week um, that feels like it lasted a year. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it has been a very tough week. I think we're gonna have more ahead. So for this moment, for this this blessed moment, uh, I'm gonna try to find some good news today, something to be encouraged about. We've got a few stories that offer some ray of hope, some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, one of those might be, we might be able to take heart from uh, some, some lessons uh, that maybe we can learn from Australia about what happened to their national health care law after conservatives took over the government some some years ago. That may offer some light in the uh, in the darkness when it comes to the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare and its fate under the Republicans who have vowed to repeal and replace it, even though they still cannot seem to come up with anything so far to replace it, at least anything that would uh, avoid millions of Americans losing their health care or being forced to pay a lot more for it. Anyway, the Australian lesson, uh, which may be useful to uh, to both Republicans and Democrats alike, that is coming up in a bit. That may be something to feel good about. We'll find out with my guest. Uh, here's something that, uh, well, I kind of feel good about. I don't know if, if Donald Trump does, but uh, uh, President Donald Trump, who is famously touchy about his approval ratings, he's not doing well. He's not doing well on that front. A new Quinnipiac University poll puts his approval ratings among among American voters at 36 percent, 36 percent approval rating. A little bit less among women, 33 percent of women approve. Uh, in uh, Barack Obama's uh, presidency, in Quinnipiac's first poll there, you'll be surprised to hear that Barack Obama's uh, numbers were much, much larger than Donald Trump's. <laughs> Again, uh, he stood, uh, Obama stood at 59% in the first poll of his presidency from Quinnipiac, 59% compared to just a teeny tiny little bitty itty bitty 36% approval for, for, uh, for Trump. So that's encouraging. However, GOP lawmakers who might want to, you know, consider distancing themselves from this wildly unpopular president, 
Well, they may not be in such a, a rush to do that because if you look at uh, Trump's approval uh, approval rating among just Republicans right now, 81 percent. Wow. Yeah. No kidding. So 81%. Republicans approve of Donald Trump by a margin of 81 percent. Not, not a margin. That's I mean, that's the number. 81 percent. Their disapproval is three percent. So, yeah, it's a margin of 78 percent. That's a huge number of people. Republicans love Donald Trump. Uh, but the problem is Democrats do not. And more importantly, independent voters uh, are a huge problem for Republicans. They are more split. Um, just 45 percent. Uh, let's see. No, actually, 35, just 35 percent approve of the job that the president is doing. Thirty five percent among independent voters with 45 percent disapproving. So uh, he's underwater among uh, among independents as well so far. And he's just getting started. Presidency is only a, uh, a week old. But. You know, one of the reasons Republicans, as I, I cite that number of, of support among Republicans, that is something they may not uh, they're going to look at closely because they have gerrymandered this country within an inch of its life. And so so many Congress members don't have to worry if they have an unpopular president, because as long as among Republicans that they have gerrymandered into their districts, they're fine. They're fine. There won't be blowback uh, as long as Republican support holds out in many of these congressional districts. However, many of these congressional districts are uh, quickly being uh, unwound at this point. On um, on Friday of last week, the same day as uh, Trump's inauguration, a federal court ruled that 12 of Alabama's legislative districts were unconstitutional due to an improper use of race in their composition. A three-judge panel on the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals enjoined the use of the districts for future elections. They wrote uh, in, in a separate order that they expect the Alabama legislature to address the issue with the districts before the 2018 state elections with the hope that the court's intervention would not be necessary. The Legislative Black Caucus uh, in Alabama uh, and the Alabama Democratic uh, uh, Committee sued to overturn the maps that were drawn by the legislature in 2012. And nonetheless, here we are in uh, what year is this? 2017. How many elections have we had with these deliberately drawn racially discriminatory maps? That's right. Um, and that was something that uh, so back in uh, it was done in 2012. And what apparently what it did was the Republican controlled legislature deliberately moved black voters who tend to vote for Democratic uh, Democratic candidates into districts that prevented them from forming alliance alliances with like minded white voters, thus muting their voices in the process. That was the argument they made and the argument that was accepted by the three judge panel of the 11th Circuit. So the uh, 11th Circuit then accepted that the black voters for five years were all kettled into pretty much one place, yep. diluting their vote. Yep. Uh, the uh, judges overall ruled that nine House and three uh, Senate districts were unconstitutional. Those were in state elections in Alabama. But this is something that we have seen now uh, in a number of states, one after another. Today, uh, in Wisconsin... Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the same thing was found in the state of Wisconsin. And after striking down those legislative maps, 
as unconstitutional. This was two months ago in Wisconsin. A federal court today ordered Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and lawmakers to redraw the legislative maps by November 1 to ensure they will be used. Those new maps will be used in the fall 2018 elections. Again, a three-judge panel rejected the uh, the state's request, which is run by Republicans, to wait until the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in on this case. But the panel also uh, denied a request by the Democratic plaintiffs that the court draw the maps. They want the court to draw it, not the Republicans in the state legislature. But that was rejected. The judges said that uh, that this was a task better left to the state's GOP-controlled legislature and Scott Walker, saying that there was no evidence that they would not comply with the order to redraw these districts in a way that was was not a racial uh, or or partisan gerrymander. Except for the evidence that they already did it once. Yeah, but now uh, they well, have they were been caught. instructed. They were caught yeah, and they, they've been it, instructed but, to not do it. But if they redraw it again, then that means that they could get away with it again and then they'd have to go through a whole process of another lawsuit all over again. Yeah, checks and balances sucks, doesn't it? Well, it takes time. It does. Uh, anyway, uh, so there's uh, some good news. Uh, Bill Whitford, the lead plaintiff in the case that was brought by Fair Elections Project, said today is a good day for Wisconsin voters. Another step in the journey of ensuring that our voices uh, are heard. Well, take your time. <laughs> so, uh, of course, the, the result of this is that uh, Democrats in the state of Wisconsin only hold about a third of the seats in both the state assembly and the state Senate. And, of course, Republicans hold the executive branch. And it's not only oh, and, and conservatives have a five to two edge now on the state Supreme Court. It's not only that they've redrawn these districts, but the Democratic Party in Wisconsin needs some work big time. And Wisconsin is not the only one where Democrats need to step up at the state level. David Haynes, the editorial page editor for the uh, journal Sentinel in uh, Milwaukee, notes today that uh, to win, you have to actually put up candidates. He notes the Democrats are the organization that couldn't be bothered to recruit a candidate to take on conservative state Supreme Court Justice Annette Ziegler. Or to find this was uh, just in uh, 2016 or find challengers to take on Walker appointees for circuit court seats in, he says, wait for it, in Milwaukee County, one of the two most Democratic counties in the state. What the hell is going on there, Wisconsin Democratic Party? I point that out as good news because it is good news that those districts are going to be redrawn. And uh, I'd like to think it's good news that now, you know, voters in Wisconsin you need to hold those Democrats accountable. You need to get involved in your uh, in your state, local and state elections. Don't leave it to the Democratic Party. All right. The uh, newly minted U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, she showed up for her first day on the job at uh, at U.N. headquarters in New York City today. She made a statement to the press before heading up to a meeting with the uh, the also new Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres. 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 Uh, Haley outlined the uh, the new U.S. approach to the U to the UN in in what the AP describes as quote blunt language with none of the diplomatic nuances characteristic of discussions at the UN. 
Yeah, I'll say. Uh, she doesn't have any. Uh, she has no foreign policy experience whatsoever. None. Nikki Haley. Right. Uh, and yet she's now in charge of, uh, she's now the U.N. ambassador for the U.S. She promised to, yes, take names of those that don't have our back. There is a new U.S.-U.N. We talked to the staff yesterday, and you are going to see a change in the way we do business. It's no longer about working harder. It's about working smarter. And we have a fantastic team at the U.S.-U.N. that's ready to prove that. Our goal um, with the administration is to show value at the U.N. And the way that we'll show value is to show our strength, show our voice, um, have the backs of our allies, and make sure that our allies have our back as well. For those that don't have our back, we're taking names. We will make points to respond to that accordingly. Um, but this is a time of strength. This is a time of action. This is a time of getting things done. And this administration is prepared and ready to go in, um, to have me go in, look at the UN, and everything that's working, we're gonna make it better. Everything that's not working, we're gonna try and fix. And anything that is seems to be obsolete and not necessary, we're going to do away with. But this is a time of fresh eyes, um, new strength, new vision, and a great day at the U.S.-U.N. Thank you very much. That was uh, now U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, <laughs> saying that we're going to take names, we're going to have strength, we're going to take action. So basically, using this body that has been created for peace, to essentially go in and and uh, make a call for war, it sounds kind like. Kind of like going yeah. in like a bully and saying, all right, anybody who is not with me is against me, and right. I'll be coming after you. Right. If you're not in favor of peace, damn it, we're going to crush you. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. And Man. the Bush administration, not the Bush administration, I'm sorry, that was me going back in uh, time. Yeah, Freudian the, slip. Yeah, the new Trump administration. You uh, wish been, it was the Bush uh, administration. Had right. been talking about cutting the United Nations budget, the U.S. contribution to the United Nations budget. The U.S. contributes about uh, 25% of the overall operations. And, uh, and you know, the Republicans have been wanting to cut the U.N. funding for years now. So it looks like they're going to try to get their chance. On Friday as well, in a uh, very short, very short, his first ever presidential press conference with a foreign leader, Donald Trump would not say whether he favors lifting sanctions imposed on Russia. His British counterpart, U.K. Prime Minister Theresa May, was with him there, and she explicitly rejected lifting those sanctions. She also declared that Trump had told her in their meeting with uh, w- that uh, that NATO had his full support. That's what Donald Trump said to her in the private meeting, and she said it out loud. Trump also addressed whether he plans to order the U.S. military to reinstate so-called Enhanced interrogation techniques like waterboarding. Yes, that would be torture. That would be war crimes. Those would be violations of the Geneva Conventions. Um, Those, of course, were instituted by the Bush administration, uh, George W. Bush administration, later halted under President Obama. In the uh, Friday press conference, however, foreign journalists pressed Trump multiple times about the use of torture. And he said that while he supports torture which is amazing in and of itself. Uh, The good news here, and yes, again, we're looking for good news today. Uh, The good news here is that he would defer to his new defense secretary, General James Mattis, uh, who says that he does not support torture. We have a great general who has just been appointed secretary of defense, uh, General James Mattis. 
And uh, he has stated publicly that he does not necessarily believe in torture or waterboarding or however you want to define it. Enhanced interrogation, I guess, would be a word that a lot of words that a lot of people would like to use. Not me. Um, I don't necessarily agree, but I would tell you that he will override because I'm giving him that power. He's an expert. He's highly respected. He's the general's general. Uh, got through the Senate very, very quickly, which in this country is not easy, I will tell you. Mm, and uh, so I'm going to rely on him. I happen to feel that it does work. I've been open about that for a long period of time. Uh, but I am going with our leaders. And uh, we're going to uh, we're going to win with or without. But I do disagree. Unclear what we're going to win, but good news, right? He's not going to uh, he's not going to allow torture. As so, long as Mattis doesn't as allow long it. as Mattis doesn't allow it, as long as Mattis stays in charge, as long as he doesn't fire Mattis. So, again, I realize, uh, you know, I can't sugarcoat any of this uh, and I realize it's a pretty low bar. But, hey. There's some good news. That is no good torture. News. By the way, not easy to get through the Senate. So far, pretty easy to get through the Senate. Democrats have not been voting against these people at all. And in some cases, there might be good reason to not vote against them. But I know that uh, the Democratic base really wants to see a show of resistance against this president. And frankly, as long as the Republicans can get these people through without a single Democratic vote, it's kind of unclear why uh, Democrats continue to vote for Donald Trump's nominees. But uh, that's a subject for another day. Uh, I got to. Um, yeah, well, we'll hold this uh, this other story as well, because I want to get to my guest here uh, for some more good news. Maybe kind of. We'll see. Uh, maybe good news for fans of health care. And I know we have them out there. I know there's a lot of our listeners are in favor of health care. Uh, so maybe some good news here, even if the worst happens to Obamacare. At least if we can take anything from the Australian example of what happened to their national health care system. That story with my guest John Judas is coming up next. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. better already welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com the utter confusion among GOPers right now continues regarding their long-promised plan to repeal and replace the affordable care act better known as obamacare 
Republican lawmakers in Congress seem to have the repeal part largely underway, but they don't seem to have any actual plan yet, at least not one that they agree upon, uh, to replace former President Obama's landmark health care insurance reform law, which resulted in access to health care for some 20 million Americans the slowest growth in health care rates in decades, and the lowest uninsured rate in American history. Other than that, as both uh, Trump and Republicans like to say, it's a disaster. A recently released report from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office stated that, the re that repealing the Affordable Care Act without a replacement could cost 32 million people to lose their insurance. This, understandably, has caused a great deal of angst amongst uh, both those who currently rely on the provisions of Obamacare for their health care, as well as many of those who provide those services, like nurses and doctors, as this new ad, launched on Thursday by healthcare advocacy, advocacy group Alliance for Healthcare Security, explains. Congress has taken the first step to rip apart our health care with no plan to replace it. They don't have a plan to ensure the 30 million people who will lose their health care. No plan to cover pre-existing conditions like cancer. No plan to keep insurance rates from skyrocketing. Everybody's costs will go up. It's going to cause pain. Repealing health care with no plan to replace it is going to hurt all of us. Tell Congress we need a plan that protects our care. Well, that's cheery. Uh, despite the confusion about what to replace the uh, Obamacare with, Donald Trump and his steadfast GOP partners in the House and Senate, and make no mistake, they are steadfast and they are partners. Uh, those folks in the House and Senate remain hell-bent on replacing the law, even if it results in extraordinary hardship for a huge swath of the American public. But as we are continually looking... For, uh, for light and hope, somehow and somewhere at the end of this uh, seemingly nightmarish tunnel, author and journalist John Judas posited the possibility at Talking Points Memo recently that even if Obamacare is gutted, the political pushback may result in a much better health care uh, plan, health care law for Americans. At least eventually, if Trump guts Obamacare, history may repeat itself the Australian lesson. That's the headline of Judas's recent piece. Joining us now to explain that lesson is John Judas. He's a journalist, author, and editor-at-large for TalkingPointsMemo.com. He formerly worked at the New Republic for about 25 years, and his articles have appeared in the American Prospect, New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, Foreign Affairs... Washington Monthly, American Enterprise, Mother Jones, and Dissent. He's also the author of seven books. His latest, published last October and presciently titled The Populist Explosion, How the Great Recession Transformed American and European Politics. John Judas, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Yeah, nice. thanks for having me. Uh, John, I, I, I don't know if I'm just grasping at straws here, or, or maybe if you are, uh, but I was, I was a little bit encouraged by your short piece at TPM recently on this, so thank you at least for that. But so before we get to the, to the possible hope that you uh, describe as the Australian lesson, explain what happened with Australia's initial uh, national health insurance system back in the in the early 70s uh, and the similarities to how the conservatives down there in Australia undermined that law 
the way Republicans have been working so hard to undermine Obamacare for the past six years since its passage here in the U.S.? Yeah, well, this is what I understand happened. Um, there was a labor government in the early 1970s, mm-hmm. and it passed a national health insurance law that operated somewhat like Medicare, but with this difference. If people didn't want um, a pu- to go, go through the public system, they could buy it privately, and they wouldn't have to pay taxes. So you could opt out of it. There wasn't a, a, mm-hmm. a mandate in that sense. And then there was the question of how it was going to be financed. Uh, were people go- was there going to be a special tax levy that would support the program? The uh, Liberal Party, which and liberal doesn't mean the same thing in Australia as it does in the United States. It's mm-hmm. closer to what we in ni- the 19th century used to call liberals, free market people. Okay, more we call them conservatives now. The Liberal Party in Australia. Uh, controlled uh, most of the state legislators, legislatures. There mm-hmm. are six in the, there, like, function like our state, uh-huh. and also the upper house of their legislature. So they were able to cripple the law by denying, its a, uh, denying a means to tax it. So taxes for it, the revenue for it, would have to come out of general revenue. So that was one big pressure on it. Why should we keep paying for this thing, you know, especially the people who were buying private insurance? The doctors were opposed to it, so they started jacking up their rates mm. to point the point where it was very hard for the what what was like their national health insurance system mm-hmm. to pay the rates. And um, that itself created a lot of pressure upon uh, both, doctors, hospitals, and upon patients. And then finally they had a big recession in 1981, like we did. And um, the Labor Party was voted out. Conservatives came in, and they just repealed the damn thing. So this is... so it sounds very similar, and I think that initial program in Australia was called Medibank. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so that was enacted in the same way. It was lawfully enacted by the, by the parliament. Its implement, implementation was undermined by, uh, by right-wingers, by right-wing legislators uh, and legislatures uh, around the nation. And you had the medical establishment itself, in that case, as you described, John, Australian doctors, jacking up the prices. That's somewhat akin. I don't know if we've seen that, but we've seen uh, for-profit health insurance companies in the U.S. clearly trying to undermine the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, 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 and that was that. And they, so they, they brought in... I you know, yeah. I, again, you, when you said this, and I'm not a health expert, mm-hmm. I'm not. Right. But... Uh, I'm not, you know, I think the problem was that they are for-profit health companies, not so much that they were especially trying to undermine. I think they, in lots of ways, thought that they were going to profit by it, but uh, the uh, Republicans in Congress cut the subsidies to the health insurance companies when they're, when they'd have to take too many risky, risky uh, patients on mm-hmm. to insure. So they really haven't been making the kind of uh, um, profit rates that they expected. So it's, again, I think a lot of it was undermined by the Republicans in Congress. Mm-hmm. I don't, 
I don't even know how much you can blame the uh, the insurance companies or the doctors for it in this in our case. It, well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm thinking back to, uh, and I know actually neither you or I are, are experts on this particular point, but I know that Aetna, for example, uh, I think it was Aetna was you know threatening to pull out of various markets and ca- unless they got this or that, they were yes, working for that's a merger. Correct. And so, in other words. I, you know, it was left. They weren't working in the same way with the program. They had problems with it. They were using it for their own purposes rather than a national system in which they have no choice uh, but to use it. And it, so it sounds similar. I'm just looking at the parallels there uh, that resulted in effectively killing MetaBank and could end up. Uh, killing Obamacare. All right, so let's move the here in this country. So let's move the clock forward a little bit. The public eventually, as you said, turned on those. Were they specifically turning on the lawmakers in Australia, as you understand it, uh, for putting that in place, or was it for putting that MetaBank in place originally, or was it just part of disenchantment overall with the uh, with the uh, the uh, the labor, which is actually the left. Uh, government at the time in the early 80s. I, I think it was all those factors. I okay. think it was, a, uh, again, you, you know, to the extent that I'm not an expert in, in uh, health care mm-hmm. politics, I'm really not an expert in Australia, but <laughs> I think both factors were involved. I, this, this disenchantment with the party in power, given that a recession had come, and uh, also the feeling that the, the, the uh, national health thing was, was not working. It was costing too much. So it goes to the conservative. The government goes to the conservatives, uh, but then uh, the, the pendulum eventually swung back to a uh, very, to very quickly. Very quickly. Uh, yes, because people figured, you know, that yeah, I know this too because I've had experience of not having health insurance. You have this incredible anxiety, mm. and um, but 1983, mm-hmm. the conservatives get voted out. Labor comes in, and this time they put in a new system that's uh, tax specially. Uh, there is there aren't opt outs the way there were with the, with the old system. Uh, it's called uh, Medicare, and it works. You know they didn't. They also were in control of most of the legislatures then, so so nobody could undermine it. And uh, they've had conservative liberal governments so called since then, mm-hmm. uh, but the system still is still in place and it's popular. So. Uh, they got a they they got a system finally that didn't have the flaws of the early one. It, it, um, I'm not you, you know mm-hmm. uh, again. I I think it's interesting just because the system was undermined in a similar way mm-hmm. the first system to the way that the American system was undermined. Uh, in my wildest dreams, I don't know know whether we could get a kind of a Medicare like the Australians get after uh, our own, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if the Republicans uh, uh, end up uh, destroying uh, Obamacare. So, well, I think the parallel that interested me was the fact that uh, you know the, the, they had a system; it was undermined, uh, and then the the pushback eventually resulted in. A stronger health care law, or at least a, a, certainly in, in that case it was a stronger health care law, but the idea that the, the public, after seeing this killed, uh, you know, came and demanded a better program, which, which you know, you note in your piece that in the U.S., uh, support for a national health insurance program of some type 
is always very high uh, when we don't have it. You say that it helped the Democrats win the White House in 92 and in 2008. But then when when the American people get an administration who actually wants to implement it, suddenly those policies are not so popular. Um, uh, and, and, And you further argue that if the Republicans do gut Obamacare, then interest once again in a national health insurance will revive. Um, what makes you so sure about that? And how do we explain the fact that Americans want this and then when they're actually going to be given it, they all of a sudden turn against it? Well, it's not hard to explain why they want it because, as I said, there's a, um, a very basic anxiety that people begin to feel about their insurance. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be greater now than it was uh, 10, 20 years ago because the, there's more churning in the job market. People more, are more worried about losing their job and then losing their insurance. Um, so, uh, I, again, I think, it, I think if, uh, if uh, the Republicans really kill Obamacare without replacing it with anything viable, you will see a, a, a political revolt in the country. Do you think that support uh, for health care uh, or a program like this, you say, it, you know, falters whenever these uh, folks come in place? Uh, what explains that? Is it just the 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 PR well, that's run against it by Republicans and so forth? This is something that really you you need to know this system better than I I do, but look. The, the problem that, uh, that we have in America is, let's say, number one, skepticism about government to begin with. Mm-hmm. Number two, we have a health system which is already um, rococo. It's so, uh, it, it's so intertwined. There's so many elements mm-hmm. in it that would have to be changed before we could get to something like what the Australians had with me- Medicare. For instance, we have... We have a, um, people getting insurance from their employer and they get all kinds of different insurance at different levels uh, we have all these insurance companies things were a lot simpler like 50 or 60 years ago we could have done this a lot a lot more e- easily but uh, now you really have to take a wrecking ball uh, to, to uh, the insurance industry you have to end the em- relationship between employers and um, individual the w- employees getting insurance upon which you know a lot of unions mm-hmm. pride themselves uh, in order to get a system I think that would really work uh, where everybody when they were born in the United States when they're American citizens would get a card and they'd have insurance and they'd have to pay for it uh, they pay for it either taxes premiums or whatever but there wouldn't be this crazy anxiety you know even to get uh, Obamacare now you almost you have to have a degree in uh, in business administration yeah. to figure out all the damn choices right. I had that much trouble with Medicare recently um, just the signing up for things and you know periods when you can enroll periods when you can't enroll i was eight days late so uh, again what what i would look for in the future in this ideal utopian community would be something that again is very common in europe where you you are born with the right to health insurance if you're not a citizen if you you mean there's all kinds of ways in which you you know might not qualify but the but 
citizens would get a right to health care. They'd have to pay for it. The The amount they'd have to be pay, pay for it would be limited by their income. That, you know, and that would be it. It would it would be off the board. People wouldn't have to worry about it. And you cite uh, the way they don't have to worry about you know going absolutely mm-hmm. broke when they're when they turn sixty five now. Uh, but I'm just saying, I think yeah. that the, the you know if you remember the Clinton plan uh, again, you, you didn't even need you you needed more than a master's degree. You needed a, a doctorate <laughs> to understand the HIPICS, the health. Well, what they call them, the health something or others. Yeah. You know they're. It was incredibly complicated program. You point to the uh, to the Swiss, and they they have a national system. In your article at uh, Talking Points Memo, uh, the, the Swiss, uh, which has a very simple system, and you say that Democrats now need to essentially they need to be ready when the pendulum swings back, if it swings back, as as you see from the Australian lesson, and uh, which I I think many of us hope happens here. Uh, so that requires Democrats to get their act together and, and sort of coalesce around a system that would be more popular with the American electorate uh, this time. Is that is that possible? Is that in the cards for Democrats? I, I hope so, yeah, I hope it's possible. I mean, Bernie Sanders ran on Medicare for all. Now mm-hmm. that again would require a lot of uh, taking a wrecking ball to some institutions. Uh, 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 maybe the private health insurance co- companies would feel that it's uh, no longer profitable, and they could, you know, might want to get into something else. But uh, that, uh, what I mentioned the Swiss model for was that you could have nonprofit insurance companies mm-hmm. like Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, that offered the in- insurance as long as it was tightly regulated and as long as everybody had to have it and as long as the amount of income that you put into it was was limited. So, you know, it can work. You don't have to eliminate insurance companies. Well, uh, I I think you do have to eliminate prop for-profit insurance companies. And and again, not you know, we I don't want to get into the debate about how to do this necessarily. I guess the question is, you know, will the Democrats be able to figure it out, figure out that clear plan, but what you're highlighting here in pointing to Australia, essentially, is, if I understand it, John Judas, the, the, the political pendulum, essentially. And it's painful, of course, when it swings in the direction for your opponents. But does history show uh, in, in the U.S., uh, like what we see in Australia, does the history show that when the pendulum swings back, that it, it often results in better, more progressive policies? Uh, over time, uh, you know, above and beyond health care even. Just looking for some well, hope here, John. Well, Social Security <laughs> was a very limited system in 1935. Did, you know, it didn't cover mm-hmm. farmers, for instance, small farmers, an exemption that the South got because they didn't want it to mm-hmm. uh, uh, cover cover blacks. Uh, and co- it didn't cover all kinds of workers. Um, the benefits were much more limited. And it was basically... In, in, reformed and improved uh, by successive administrations of you know and the two that did almost did the most were eisenhower and nixon republicans so you know you get a system that's basically popular and you can do a lot of things with it um the the problem with health care is we haven't started with a you know with a base system that everybody supports as well you know it's got a few problems let's fix them uh so uh, again, I think it's I think it's possible to improve things. It's just uh, we're in a you know in a difficult situation politically, very polarized, um, 
very skeptical about government, so it's it might take, uh, on the one hand, uh, the collapse of our current health system, and secondly, a political kind of crisis that would give the, the Democrats the kind of big majorities they'd need to, to make dramatic changes. Uh, I- It looks like we're heading towards both, to be frank. Uh, Before I let you go, John, uh, your latest book, The Populist Explosion, How the Great Recession Transformed American and European Politics. Uh, I I apologize for not having read it, but the the title, and I know it came out uh, before the election, actually in October, the the title seems quite prescient. Uh, In retrospect, was the pendulum swinging back, or at least swinging towards uh, Trump and his... uh, at least pretend populism uh, was that much more predictable last year than so many regarded it in 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 the year or two leading up to his election, as you see it. Last year was 2016. I I started the book in the summer of 2015, and I had seen uh, Trump in uh, New Hampshire in August mm-hmm. of. 2015, and I saw him, and, and the little bell went off in my head, Ross Perot. Mm. And uh, there were, it was at a high school, and people were lined up, uh, oh, I don't know, for, it was like mm-hmm. the movie premiere of Godfather <laughs> 2, you know, lines stretching way out into the highways. And, uh, you know, it was clear something was happening, and it was also clear by then that something was happening with Sanders. I didn't expect either of them to go as far as they did, but, um, you know, by the time I did my started the book, and I wrote it pretty quickly, uh, things in Europe and things in the United States were both uh, percolating. John Judas, author of The Populist Explosion, How the Great Recession Transformed American and European Politics. He's also the editor-at-large for TalkingPointsMemo.com and recently uh, offered what I'm going to choose, John, uh, to see as a hopeful article (laughs) headlined, If Trump Guts Obamacare, History May Repeat Itself, The Australian Lesson. John, always good uh, and helpful uh, talking to you. Thanks for joining us today. Sure. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. A quick break. We're back with a, a few more items here, uh, and yes, some good news, I think, in all of them. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's all in the air, you hear it everywhere. No matter what you do, it's gonna grab a hold on you. California soul. Yep. Welcome back. Welcome back to the broadcast from California. A lot of California soul here. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Desi Doyen, you had a, a, a point you wanted to make, a, a couple of dots you wanted to connect yes, from that interview for, with John Judas. Yes, an observation. John Judas had mentioned how in Australia, when it came time for the uh, Labor Party to reinstate and reanimate their health 
uh, healthcare system mm-hmm. that it was they had control of the state legislatures that then were prevented from undermining it because they were with the same party. So when you mention at the beginning that the Wisconsin beginning the has show, at the yeah. beginning of the show that Wisconsin now has this uh, new requirement to redistrict because of heavy gerrymandering that hey, Democrats, why didn't you challenge people in all of these races? You know, it's the state legislatures where a lot of this action happens. Wisconsin and Alabama, and I forgot to mention North Carolina. They also were found to have uh, the Republicans there to have uh, racially gerrymandered their districts, about 28 of them. They were ordered to hold a new election this year in 2017. I think that has now been actually put on hold uh, while it's being challenged at the Supreme Court. So it may the election, this special election that had been ordered may not happen in 2017, but it's it's going to happen there as well. And yeah, state the point is, the yeah. point is, there's a lot of action happening at your state level and get involved in what's happening with your state legislatures. They draw the di- the boundaries, the districts. Indeed, they do. Uh, and so I want to get to a, a California story in a second, but I just want to hit this real quick, if if it's even possible to hit this real quick. But at least four senior officials in uh, Trump's White House have active accounts on a private Republican National Committee email system, at least according uh, to a new report in Newsweek. Counselor Kelly Ann Conway White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, Chief Strategist and Senior Counselor Steve Bannon, and Senior Advisor Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, all have email accounts on rnchq.org, which is uh, which is run by the RNC. Now, Trump, you may recall, had repeatedly attacked his opponent, Democratic uh, uh, presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, last year for using a private email server, and yet... Conway, Spicer, Bannon, Kushner, all using private email in the White House. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, you know, they don't actually care. You think Um, the uh, the the use of uh, separate uh, political email accounts at the White House is not actually illegal. So they could do that. They could use a separate account as long as they keep business separate from uh, personal and, and political business, the disclosure requirement for official business conducted using electronic messaging accounts, apparently that's a rule or a law, stipulates that if the White House staffers have already used private accounts like the RNC ones, that they must copy or forward those communications into the government system within 20 days. We will see if they do that. That was a law that was passed in 2014 to prevent presidents from shielding communications that fall under the Presidential Records Act of 1979, which was put in place after the uh, problems with the uh, Nixon administration. That rnchq.org email system, that is the same one that caused problems during the George W. Bush administration when they claimed to have lost 22 million Bush administration emails. And at that time, of course, Republicans didn't care because it was a Republican administration. Now they were furious about uh, Hillary Clinton having a private email server, despite the fact that she turned over uh, most of the emails. And uh, yes, she made the decision about which ones were private and which ones were uh, were work related. And so that's where the problem started. But they didn't care when 22 million Bush administration emails completely disappeared. That RNC 
HQ.org account, by the way, is hosted on the same commercial server as it was during the Bush years. Placed down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, called uh, Smart Tech. That name may ring a bell for uh, some longtime Brad blog readers and broadcast listeners. That was the uh, that was the server that, in the middle of the night, uh, in uh, in t- 2004 during the presidential election, in the middle of the night, the of results election night. on election night, results from the election, the presidential election in Ohio, suddenly moved from Ohio. Down to this smart tech server in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, where they house, among other things, rnchq.org and uh, georgewbush.org and all of that. And when those uh, when those results suddenly the, the server had gone down in Ohio, John Kerry was winning at the time, according to the results. And then suddenly the computers went out, came back up down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Voila! George W. Bush was winning. So uh, there's a little uh, little reminder for you, a little blast from the past. About uh, the same server. Yep, the same exact one. And uh, George W. Bush's ethics lawyer, Richard Painter, says the RNC email system, um, according to the U.S. intelligence, was hacked during the 2016 race. So Painter says they better be careful after making such a huge ruckus over the private email over at the State Department says George W. Bush's ethics attorney. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since the uh, report came out, and this is why it's a good news story, since this report came out from Newsweek a day or two ago, Kellyanne Conway, Jared Kushner, Sean Spicer, and Steve Bannon have all shut down, reportedly have shut down their rnchq.org private server email addresses, uh, email accounts. At least that's what they say. I think they'll still have to turn over whatever emails they might have sent on those accounts uh, before they shut them down. But the good news here is, yes, public pressure, the media, the press, it works. It works to change things. It works to make things better. That, despite Steve Bannon's attack on the press yesterday, telling them to keep their mouths shut. Of course, he would love that uh, because it wouldn't uh, if, if only the press kept their mouth shut, they wouldn't reveal that Steve Bannon had a private email account in the White House, that Steve Bannon is registered in two separate states, that he, Steve Bannon seems actually to have committed voter registration fraud in the state of Florida. So, yeah, they don't care for uh, for the media for uh, understandable reasons, perhaps. All right, uh, here's one more story, and we'll let you decide if this is a good one or not. I get uh, these uh, announcements from the California Secretary of State whenever a uh, statewide ballot proposition uh, enters circulation for signatures, for uh, to, for petition gathering to try and end up on the, uh, on the ballot. Well, there's this. This is the first one I've received that I at least that I've noticed uh, in 2017. The first one that I've received since the 2016 election from the California Secretary of State, from the California Secretary of All State. Right. Uh, this initiative is uh, is titled California Nationhood Initiative, Constitutional Amendment and Statute. If successful, if this gets onto the ballot, it uh, repeals provision in California Constitution stating California is an inseparable part of the United States and that the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land. It would remove that from the California Constitution. And it places a question of whether California should become a separate country onto a future ballot. 
So it would in in the first case, it would remove the uh, the business from the California Constitution that regards the U.S. as the supreme law of the land, and then it sets up a second vote in uh, I think in 2019. Uh, this future vote would allow uh, would be a declaration of independence from the United States if 50 percent of registered voters participate in that election and if 55 percent of those voting approve. So that could happen. This is actually a thing that is moving forward right now. Uh, pr- the proponent of the measure guy by the name of Marcus Evans, uh, he must collect about five hundred and eighty five thousand signatures from registered voters. That would be eight percent of the total votes cast for governor in the uh, 2014 November 2014 general election. That's what he has to do in order to qualify for the ballot. The uh, he has 180 days now to circulate petitions for the measure, which are being uh, circulated at yescalifornia.org for those who might be interested in uh, in in separating from the United States. And they're calling that, of course, Cal Exit. Yep. After Brexit. And I'm not sure uh, how I feel about that. California is, of course, the sixth largest economy in the world if taken just by itself. A uh, larger economy, for example, than the uh, the country of France. So, uh, yescalifornia.org, you can print out petitions for signature gathering and so forth if you're in California, if you'd like to help this effort, if you think it's a good idea. I don't know if it is or not. Ask me after week two of this presidency. <laughs> Uh, I suspect we'll talk about it more in the future. But I know that if we do, if we do separate out here from the rest of the country, I want to build a big, a beautiful wall. With a big door. All along the border. I'm not sure about the door yet, but, well, it'll be a big wall all along the border uh, to help keep those rapists from Arizona from uh, from coming into California. That's a, though, though I, you know, some, I assume, are good people. I'm still not sure that I... I don't know I, that I, they're sending us yeah, their best people. I don't think they are. So keep that in mind. All right, uh, we will be back with you uh, next time for another thrilling episode of the Bradcast. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest, John Judas from TPM, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of this program or any other... You can download all the Bradcasts you can eat at bradblog.com, where we are celebrating our 12th anniversary of troublemaking and muckraking as we head into our our lucky 13th year. (laughs) Hoo-wee. Thanks to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue doing exactly that. We really need your help, and we are mighty grateful for it. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, and you can find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the TheBradBlog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Like a sound you hear that lingers in your ear, but you can't forget from sundown to sun. It's all in the air, you hear it everywhere, no matter what you do.